One, The Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song, Lionheart, by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 10. A Republic, If You Can Keep It The United States of America had finally won their independence from Great Britain, and in 1783, King George III recognized each state's individual sovereignty. It had been an incredible struggle, with the horrors of battle being only a small fraction of the misery the Americans experienced. Thousands of refugees had been displaced from their homes, smallpox and other diseases swept through the colonies, and starvation was all too common. Cut off from trading with England and her other colonies had severely damaged the American economy, and out-of-control money printing and debt had only exacerbated the problem. Yes, the Americans had won their independence, but now they faced a slew of different challenges as they struggled to build a new nation. One such challenge that certainly kept some congressmen up at night was the fate of the Continental Army. At the end of the war, George Washington maintained control over his army, and there were those, including many of his officers, such as Alexander Hamilton, who believed Washington should use the army to take control of the fledgling nation and proclaim himself, if not king, then something similar to it. A large percentage of the populace, and even many in the Congress, likely would have approved of this. After all, these were a people accustomed to being ruled by a king and Washington's nearly divine status among the citizenry made him the perfect candidate. It was believed by many that the loose government the states had created under the Articles of Confederation was too weak, and a strong personality was needed to govern such a vast and diverse country. After all, no republic of that size had ever been established before, and besides, had not all previous republics eventually devolved into some sort of monarchy or dictatorship in the end? Any concerns about Washington's intentions were greatly alleviated when, on December 23, 1783, His Excellency surrendered his commission to the Congress at Annapolis, Maryland. He did not have to do so, of course. He could have followed in the footsteps of Julius Caesar and declared himself dictator, or named himself emperor, as Napoleon Bonaparte would decades later. Instead, Washington gave a flourishing bow to Congress and read a speech, his hands trembling, tears welling up in his eyes as he addressed the soldiers whom he referred to as his family. He deemed to command the interests of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God and those who have superintendence of them to his holy keeping. Having now finished the work assigned to me, I retire from the great theater of action 
and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. President Mifflin accepted Washington's commission on behalf of the Congress and replied to Washington in a speech that had been prepared for him by Thomas Jefferson. You have conducted the great military contest with wisdom and fortitude, invariably regarding the rights of the civil power through all disasters and changes. Congress had safely avoided one pitfall, a military coup, but they still faced an enormity of challenges, chief among them being money. Congress and the individual states owed a great deal of debt to foreign nations, American citizens, and most worrisome of all, the army. The Continental soldiers had risked everything to fight for their country, and they expected what was rightfully owed to them. An angry army was a legitimate concern for the new republic. After all, a group of 300 soldiers from Pennsylvania had already surrounded the Congress in June of 1783, demanding assurances that they would receive the money owed to them. The soldiers were quite inebriated, however, and the Congress was able to slip away, abandoning Philadelphia as the seat of government. America's problems were not all internal, however. In fact, with the might of the British military no longer backing them up, Americans had become easy prey. For example, American ships faced ever-increasing threats from foreign navies and, of course, pirates. In particular, the Barbary states along the North African coast of Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli used the threat of piracy to force other nations to pay them tribute. For centuries, the Barbary pirates had not only captured merchant ships in the Mediterranean, but it would also sail up and down the coast of Europe, snatching Christians to ransom or sell as slaves. Most of the European powers paid the tribute demanded by the Barbary states, such as Tripoli, in modern-day Libya. Eager to avoid Barbary piracy, the U.S. Congress dispatched Thomas Jefferson, who was then serving as the minister to France, and John Adams, who was serving as the minister to England, to meet with the ambassador of Tripoli in London. At the meeting, Jefferson asked the Tripolitan ambassador why his people enslaved Christians. The ambassador informed Jefferson and Adams that all non-Muslims were considered sinners, and thus, Muslims not only had a right, but a duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found, and make slaves of all they could take as prisoners. Tripoli based its laws on those of the Prophet Muhammad, the ambassador informed them, and the Quran stated that making war on non-believers would ensure a man's place in paradise. While Jefferson and Adams negotiated with Tripoli, the Congress turned its attention to the western frontier. American settlers had already begun moving westward, but the Spanish also occupied territory in the area south of the Ohio River and east of the Mississippi River. Spain hoped that the Americans in that region, largely neglected by Congress and hoping to trade through the Spanish-controlled port of New Orleans, would secede from the United States and align themselves with Spain. John Jay, who along with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams had negotiated the Treaty of Paris, was acting as Secretary of Foreign Affairs at the time. A congressional committee, chaired by James Monroe, sent Jay to the Southwest Territory to negotiate a treaty with Spain. Monroe was eager to satisfy the settlers in the Southwest and limit the role of Spain in the territory. He wanted American rights in the territory reiterated, along with a stipulation that the United States would have a free navigation along the Mississippi River.
Jay negotiated with Spanish representatives, but eventually returned to the committee seeking permission to give up American rights to navigating the Mississippi River for 25 years. Congressmen from the northern states were willing to agree to those terms, hoping that would protect eastern commercial interests despite sacrificing western lands. Monroe was still able to defeat the provision because under the Articles of Confederation, treaties had to be ratified by nine votes. The northern states could only muster seven votes, and though it was a simple majority, it was not enough for ratification. While sectional divisions over the lands to the west were building between the northern and southern states, the issue of money still hung over everything. In fact, the lack of funds and ability to repay the debt was beginning to see doubt in Republican institutions. This inability to raise funds was, of course, exacerbated by the loss of English markets, hurting both the northern and southern states. Momentum was building for the reformation of the Articles of Confederation. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay agreed that the Articles had to be reformed and more power given to the central government. So did a young protege of Thomas Jefferson named James Madison. James Madison was named after his father, but most of the family called him Jimmy. James Sr. was a tobacco farmer in Piedmont, Virginia, about 30 miles from where Thomas Jefferson grew up. The elder James had inherited the farm from his father, but enlarged it to about 5,000 acres, making him the largest landowner in town and a prominent citizen. At the age of 11, little Jimmy was sent away to school. He returned five years later and began to prepare for college. Unlike Thomas Jefferson and the other Virginia elites, James Madison chose not to attend college at William & Mary. Instead, he traveled north to the College of New Jersey, which is today known as Princeton University. It was thought that the weather and mosquitoes at Williamsburg might further harm his already weak health. Madison was small and frail, weighing less than 140 pounds, and appeared to always be lingering on the edge of a fatal ailment. In fact, he predicted an early death but avoided that fate, outliving most of his revolutionary contemporaries. Madison returned to Virginia in 1772 to study law. By that time, tensions between England and the colonies were heating up, and two years later, Madison joined the local committee of safety, overseeing the local militia in anticipation of armed conflict with the mother country. He was commissioned as a colonel in the militia, but due to his poor health, he never saw combat. Instead, Madison was elected to the Virginia legislature in 1776. There, he became a protege of Thomas Jefferson and a proponent for American independence. Madison, like Washington and his allies, understood that strengthening the Articles of Confederation, which Washington believed to be fatally flawed, was necessary if the young Confederacy was to survive. However, convincing the states to willingly give up additional sovereignty to a central authority would be no easy task. Most Americans still feared a strong central government, worried that it would usurp their rights as King George had and betray the spirit of 76. Then, in the autumn of 1786, Congress faced its own armed uprising. The Massachusetts economy was collapsing while rising taxes and falling prices strangled farmers. These farmers appealed to the state legislature begging it to issue paper currency to stimulate the economy and to enact laws to stay the seizure of property for failure to pay debts. The lower house agreed, 
but the Boston money men blocked the bills in the upper house. The courts began foreclosing on the farms, auctioning land, tools, houses, furniture, and even clothes. One of the men foreclosed on was a war veteran and former captain in the Continental Army named Daniel Shays. Shays and a thousand others physically shut down the courts, thereby preventing foreclosures. After all, these men had refused to let the British force them into bankruptcy, and they'd be damned if they let Boston's fat cats do it now. In response to the crisis, the governor called up the militia, but many militiamen refused to muster. The Congress did not have power under the Articles of Confederation to send assistance. As civil war broke out in Massachusetts, fears of anarchy began to sweep the nation. Since classical times, the argument against republicanism had always been that it degenerated into democracy. Democracy, of course, would then degenerate into anarchy. Shays' rebellion had convinced many that if something wasn't done to strengthen the republic, it would destroy itself, and the great experiment in republicanism would forever vanish from the earth. Thus, in May of 1787, delegates met in Philadelphia for a constitutional convention to reform and strengthen the Articles of Confederation, or as Congress put it, to render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union. Benjamin Franklin joined the delegates representing Pennsylvania. George Washington was there, along with James Madison, representing Virginia, and Alexander Hamilton came with the New York delegation. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were not present. The two men were still serving as ministers to France and Great Britain respectively, but were kept abreast of the proceedings by several members of the convention, including Benjamin Franklin. The first order of business was to select someone to preside over the convention. The obvious choice was between the country's two most famous citizens, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Franklin declined for reasons of health and a belief that if the convention was going to have any chance of success, it would need someone of George Washington's stature. While the convention was only charged with reforming the Articles of Confederation, they went beyond that, some argue illegally, to draft an entirely new constitution. Though he did not partake in the debates, Washington's presidency of the convention largely silenced the critics of the constitution's legality and gave the convention more legitimacy. One of the greatest problems the delegates faced was creating a central government for such a diverse and geographically distant people. The politics of the New England Yankees, Pennsylvania Quakers, and Southern Planters were dramatically different. The unifying crisis that the war had provided no longer existed, and getting the diverse population of the United States to agree on the powers of the central government was no simple task. There were many issues before the convention, but few as divisive as the selection of a Congress and the role and power of the executive. The smaller states wanted equal representation in Congress. The larger states wanted a house based on population. The compromise, suggested by Franklin, was to have two houses. In the lower house, the House of Representatives, each state would have a number of representatives proportional to their population and selected by popular vote. In the upper house, the Senate, each state would get two representatives selected by the state legislatures. As to the matter of the executive, there were some, such as Alexander Hamilton, who believed the executive powers should be in the hands of a single man, elected for life. Others, such as Benjamin Franklin, 
believed that the executive powers should be given to two or more men to ensure that no one man could become too powerful. After all, an elected dictator can trample the rights of the people just as easily as a hereditary one can. Franklin also favored terms so that the executives would be required to stand for election again. In the end, the convention took a little from each idea, making it a single executive who would have to stand for re-election every four years. On September 17, 1789, the members of the convention, beginning with George Washington, signed the Constitution of the United States of America. As he left the hall, Benjamin Franklin was stopped by an anxious woman who asked what type of government the delegates had created. Franklin replied, A republic, madam, if you can keep it. The delegates had signed the Constitution, but the real work had only just begun. In order to become the law of the land, the Constitution needed to be ratified by at least nine of the states. At Mount Vernon, Washington, Hamilton, and Madison were joined by John Jay to plan their strategies going forward as they waited for word about ratification. Hamilton, Madison, and Jay had published a series of arguments favoring ratification of the Constitution under the collective pseudonym Publius. These writings are now commonly known as the Federalist Papers. Opponents of ratification, who feared the Constitution placed too much power in a central government, wrote what has become known as the Anti-Federalist Papers, under multiple pseudonyms including Brutus, Cato, Sentinel, and the Federal Farmer. Unlike the Federalist Papers, we do not know definitively who was behind these writings. Although he denied association, many point to Thomas Jefferson as the ringleader of the collective authors, though he did not publicly oppose ratification. These two separate groups more or less laid the foundation for what would become the first two American political parties, Hamilton's Federalists and Jefferson's Republicans. While Washington was technically a member of the Federalists, his awesome stature placed him above party politics in the eyes of the people. Washington's home at Mount Vernon was also serving as election headquarters. Hamilton insisted that Washington be part of the new government, and honestly, without his stabilizing presence, it might not have survived. Despite Washington threatening to barricade himself in his house to prevent being forced to serve, he was elected president. At this time, one did not campaign for president, as it was believed that anyone who actually desired to be president was too power-hungry to deserve the job. Washington was nominated without ever seeking the office and was elected by a unanimous vote of all 64 members of the Electoral College. John Adams was elected vice president, with 34 electors voting for him. Charles Thomas was sent to inform Washington that he had won. When he told the old general that the vote had been unanimous, Washington replied that the unanimous vote scarcely leaves me with the alternative for an option. He would serve as president. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review 
Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War, but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. Washington was greeted by crowds and great parades at every town he passed through on his way from Mount Vernon to New York City, where the provisional capital had been placed. Rumors began to swirl that Washington was really a king by a different name. This talk worried Washington, and he feared some of the vagaries in the Constitution could allow a president to snatch more power than had been intended by the drafters. Such a man could then set himself up as a king, Washington wanted to demonstrate his opposition to this and made a point in his inaugural address of stating that he had no heirs or offspring. Thus, he would not be establishing hereditary rule. Washington's first cabinet included his Vice President John Adams, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Attorney General Edmund Randolph, and Henry Knox who had served with distinction under Washington during the Revolution as Secretary of War. James Madison and John Jay also joined the cabinet as advisors. During the first year of his presidency, Washington was so bored and had so little to do that rumors began spreading that he believed the job was really ceremonial and planned to step aside after two years. Washington had given the unenviable task of solving the country's massive debt problem to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton came up with a plan whereby the federal government would assume all of the debts of the states. This was opposed by a coalition of the southern states, chief among them Virginia, led by James Madison. Madison's fear was that assumption would create too much power in the hands of the central government. One day, Thomas Jefferson ran into Hamilton outside of Washington's office. Jefferson believed Hamilton looked somber, haggard, and dejected beyond comparison. His manner of dress was uncouth and neglected. Jefferson asked what was the matter. Hamilton explained his trouble with the assumption of the debt, and Jefferson suggested that Hamilton and Madison should come to his house for dinner to see if they could work the problem out. Jefferson broached the subject at dinner and asked that they discuss the issues together. The result was that Madison agreed not to vocally oppose the federal government's assumption of the state debts if Hamilton agreed to use his influence to have the permanent site of the new capital built on the Potomac in Virginia. Thus was the location of Washington, D.C. determined. That same year, the first real public debate about African slavery was presented before Congress in the form of two petitions. One petition sought to immediately end the Atlantic slave trade, and the other sought to gradually abolish the practice of slavery itself. The petitions had been presented by Quakers and would no doubt have received no notice whatsoever except for the fact that one of the signatories was Benjamin Franklin. President Washington agreed with Franklin on the moral failings of slavery. He had repeatedly made public his belief that the country should institute a policy of gradual emancipation. Thus, 
the Quaker petitioners urged Washington to add his name to Franklin's in backing a bill in Congress to end the sad practice which had plagued the land since 1619. Contrary to depictions in popular culture, black African slavery did not begin with European slave traders running through the jungle snatching unsuspecting natives. Centuries before the first African slaves were brought to the shores of Jamestown, Muslim noblemen in the Mediterranean were enslaving black Africans. Nor were black Africans the only people these noblemen enslaved. The coasts of northern Europe were routinely raided by Muslim pirates, and the people there snatched up and sold into slavery. When the Moors captured Visigoth Spain, white Christians were enslaved en masse. About 30,000 white Christians were sent from Spain to Damascus alone as the prescribed one-fifth of the captured booty owed to the caliph. In fact, during that time, white slaves were so much more plentiful than black slaves that Muslim noblemen coveted the black Africans. Muslims would also buy white slaves from white Christians. The word slave comes from the word Slav. Slavic people sold to Muslims by other Europeans were in such abundance as slaves in the Muslim world that the word Slav became a synonym in Arabic for the word eunuch, thus the origins of the word slave. When the Christians in Spain began reconquering the Iberian Peninsula, they emulated the Muslims by enslaving their captives. By the 1300s, a few black African slaves were sold in Spain by more slave traders, and the numbers began to slowly increase over the following centuries. Meanwhile, in the Muslim countries along the Mediterranean, the number of black slaves began to rapidly increase. The Arabs of northern Africa would raid across the deserts into the lush, wet forests that they called the country of the blacks and bring back captives. By the 15th century, Muslim mullahs, or holy men, dominated the black African slave trade. As the Arabs Islamized Western Africa, they brought civilization to a land where the people had always lived primarily at a subsistence level. But they also brought slavery. To be sure, slavery was not unknown in West Africa before the coming of Islam. After all, slavery has existed almost everywhere people have resided on earth. However, once West Africa became Muslim, slavery there grew rapidly. With captive peoples so numerous, African rulers would trade 15 or 20 slaves for a single Arabian horse. Entire kingdoms in Western Africa began to grow around the slave trade, and slaves were the only form of recognized personal property. Soon, slaves became the most striking manifestation of personal wealth in Western Africa. The slaves in Africa were used for a variety of purposes, from harvesting to mining for gold. Work in the gold mines was particularly horrible. Male slaves, both white and black, would be sent into the mines and given women to marry. They would conceive, birth, and raise their children down in the mines. Then, one fateful summer morning in 1444, over 200 black African slaves were sold to a Portuguese trader. The Portuguese soon found the trade in black slaves to be quite profitable. Portuguese captains began to raid African coasts, snatching natives to sell. However, this practice was too slow to turn a profit, and much too dangerous. The Portuguese quickly realized that it was more economically viable 
to purchase the slaves from the Africans themselves. The Portuguese soon discovered that the only literate men in the region were Muslim holy men. Thus, the Portuguese slave traders would make contact with the mullahs, usually themselves black Africans, and trade for slaves. Most of the slaves were captives from battles. Normally, they were pagans, rarely Muslim, and though the majority of the slaves sold to the Portuguese were black, they weren't always. Sometimes, a white captive was sold to them as well. To some today, it might come as a shock that African men would sell other African men to Europeans. However, these slaves were normally captives from wars with other tribes. Africans saw no kinship with one another simply because they had the same skin color. They did not care about these other Africans any more than the Europeans did. Had the slaves not been sold to the Portuguese, they likely would have been either sold to the North African Arabs through the Saharan slave trade or sent to labor in the gold mines or fields in Western Africa. At first, the slaves bought by the Portuguese were sold in Portugal and used for all types of jobs, but eventually they began to make their way to the New World. By the 1600s, the Dutch had entered the slave trade, normally acquiring their slaves from slave ships captured in war. The crowns of Europe and their ambitious colonists soon realized that they could make fortunes growing sugar in the Caribbean colonies. It was extremely difficult work in the hot, humid air and blazing sun, and black slaves were purchased for the task. African slaves were shipped across the Atlantic by the tens of thousands, crammed into hulls of ships for the months-long journey, many dying of disease, hunger, or exhaustion. Eventually, slaves were brought to the English colonies in North America and used for a variety of work. But at first, the practice did not flourish as white indentured servants were the primary source of labor. However, as time passed and less and less Europeans were willing to indenture themselves, farmers turned more and more to African slavery. The practice eventually began to flourish in the North American colonies and later states that grew cotton, tobacco, and other cash crops. As they had in the Caribbean, slaves in the agricultural regions of the United States soon became viewed as a necessity. Slavery, one of the greatest sins of mankind, sadly became an institution in the land of the free. The origins of the slave trade begs the question, since white Christians are not solely responsible for it, why does history convict them solely of it? I believe the answer stems primarily from the nature of Christianity itself. As the ambassador of Tripoli explained to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, slavery is permitted by the Quran. After all, in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad is considered an excellent example, whom all Muslims should seek to emulate. Allah's messenger was himself not only a slave owner, but a slave trader who routinely encouraged his men to possess slaves and sold slaves to fund his army. Jesus, on the other hand, never owned slaves. Christ came to free the captives and liberate the oppressed, not enslave them. Though Christian doctrine does not expressly forbid the practice, it is clear that owning and selling slaves is sinful. After all, it is difficult to love your neighbor as yourself when you are beating him. Furthermore, Jesus, who himself came not to rule, 
but to serve, taught that being a slave was much more righteous in the eyes of God than being a slave owner. Therefore, he said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Matthew 20, 26-27 As famed 19th century Christian scholar Andrew Murray explained, Christ simply taught us the blessed truth, there is nothing so divine and heavenly as being the servant and helper of all. This, of course, brings up an obvious question. If Jesus opposed slavery, then why did he not call it out specifically? After all, slavery was all around him, as it made up much of the Roman economic system. While this is true, it must be noted that Jesus did not attempt to overthrow any aspect of the Roman economic system, much to the chagrin of the Jews. New Testament scholar Dr. Donald A. Carson explains that instead of attacking Roman policies such as slavery directly, Christ's overthrowing of slavery is through the transformation of men and women by the gospel rather than through merely changing an economic system. After all, if you want lasting change, he explains, you've got to transform the hearts of human beings, and that was Jesus' mission. The irreconcilability of the sinful practice of slavery with the doctrines of Christianity is exactly the reason Christians bear the responsibility for the African slave trade. Not because it was solely their doing, it wasn't, but because if they were truly Christian, they should have known better. And by the 18th century, Christians obviously did know better, as it was Christians, like those Quakers that petitioned Congress, who eventually ended the transatlantic slave trade. In other words, Christians blame themselves and their own ancestors not because Christian Europeans are more responsible for the slave trade than others, but because, as Christians, they should have never been involved in such a deplorable practice to begin with. And they know it. Sadly, despite George Washington's moral opposition to the practice of slavery, he refused to take a stand on the petitions, correctly claiming it was properly before the Congress. He would not publicly comment on the matter until it came before him for an official decision. No bill concerning the matter passed Congress, and thus none ever came to Washington for his signature. Serious consideration for ending the barbaric practice would not begin until a Christian revival, now known as the Second Great Awakening, swept the country in the 19th century. As more and more Americans followed in the footsteps of men like Benjamin Franklin by returning to Christ, the eventual abolition of the sinful practice of slavery became a certainty. Unfortunately, for those men and women in chains in George Washington's day, the peak of the Great Awakening was still decades in the future and it would be another 73 years before a president acted to end the institution of slavery in America. As African slavery in America did not reach its peak until the mid-19th century, it is my intention to go into more details regarding the practice in Book 2. The following year, in 1791, the Bill of Rights were finally ratified and added to the Constitution. Drafted by James Madison and signed in 1789, the Bill of Rights constitute the first ten amendments to the Constitution. These ten amendments lay out rights of the people and rights of the states. For example, the cherished rights of freedom of religion, press, speech, assembly, and petition of government are enshrined in the First Amendment, while the right to keep and bear arms is in the Second Amendment. 
Somewhat ironically, the same year the Bill of Rights was ratified, Congress imposed an excise tax on whiskey to pay for the debt under Hamilton's plan. Grain farmers in western Pennsylvania were incensed and began to protest, arguing that the tax was unfair and disproportionate. The farmers refused to pay the tax, and the tax collectors fled the area, fearing for their lives. In August of 1794, thousands of men gathered in a field outside of Pittsburgh and defied the government to come and get them in what has become known as the Whiskey Rebellion. They even set up mock guillotines to show solidarity with the French revolutionaries whose bloody revolution had begun five years earlier. In response, Washington remarked that, I consider this insurrection as the first formidable fruit of the democratic societies, meaning that it had more in common with the French Revolution than the American. In other words, it was the beginnings of the democratic anarchy that the founding fathers feared. Washington took personal command of 13,000 U.S. troops and rode west with Hamilton at his side to crush the rebellion. This was the only time a sitting president ever led troops toward battle. Washington left the formation at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, about midway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Hamilton took over command while Washington returned to the capital. There was no rebellion remaining by the time Hamilton arrived in Pittsburgh, and he led the army in a parade through the town. On Washington's orders, Hamilton granted amnesty to all rebels who signed an oath that they would henceforth obey the laws of the federal government. However, the greatest crisis of Washington's presidency was the debate over what had become known as the Jay Treaty. British troops had remained on America's northwestern frontier in violation of the Treaty of Paris. The British were also encouraging Indian tribes to refuse Washington's offers of accommodation. The British and French were at war again, and since the Americans were very much pro-French, British ships were capturing American vessels in the Caribbean in an attempt to stop them trading with France. By 1794, the United States was growing dangerously close to reigniting a war with Britain. John Jay, now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, sailed to London to negotiate a compromise. Washington was afraid of a premature war with the British. He understood that the fledgling American Republic was not yet prepared for war and desperately wanted to avoid it. The American people, however, still harbored animosity toward the British and despised the idea of a negotiated peace. The negotiated terms were decidedly pro-British and Jefferson's Republicans went crazy when the terms of the treaty were made public. Jay claimed he could have walked at night up and down the East Coast and have the entire way lighted by the protesters burning him in effigy. The treaty might not have been popular, but the United States had avoided a war that likely would have seen their young republic snuffed out well before it had a chance to blossom. Washington used his high stature to push the treaty through the Congress against the opposition led by his old ally James Madison, and of course, Thomas Jefferson behind the scenes. Washington did not seek re-election for a third term, and the presidential race later that year pitted old friends John Adams and Thomas Jefferson against one another. Adams won, and Jefferson became his vice president. When Adams was sworn into office, Washington whispered in his ear, 
Aye, I am fairly out, and you fairly in. See which of us will be happiest. Washington retired to Mount Vernon. Unlike almost every other country throughout history, there were no wars, coups, or entrenched leaders refusing to leave. The very first transfer of power had gone through peacefully. Adams, like Washington, was a member of the Federalists, and he and Jefferson had been at odds through much of Washington's presidency. Now, however, with his wife Abigail encouraging him, Adams sought to let bygones be bygones and rekindled his old friendship with Jefferson. He wanted to include Jefferson in the affairs of government, much more than Washington had included Adams. Jefferson agreed that they should try to work together and was eager to make up with his old friend. However, once it was clear that Adams was retaining most of Washington's advisors, men loyal to Alexander Hamilton, Madison and some of the other Republicans pointed out that Jefferson would have to oppose Adams on much of his domestic and foreign agenda. Jefferson did not want to oppose Adams from within the cabinet and thus declined Adams' offer to join. Back in 1789, a people's revolution had begun in France and power had changed hands many times. This made it difficult to negotiate peace and the United States had been fighting an undeclared war with French privateers in the Atlantic and Caribbean over sailing rights. President Adams dispatched a delegation to discuss peace terms, but the French arrogantly demanded the United States pay 50,000 pounds sterling before they would even speak to them. Indignant, Adams refused and recalled the delegates. As war drew closer, America turned decidedly anti-French. Jefferson, however, was a Francophile due to his many years spent as the American minister to France. He and his Republican Party viciously attacked Adams for what they saw as a failure to make peace with America's oldest ally. Jefferson was unaware that the French had demanded that the Americans pay to discuss terms, as Adams had not made the information public. Adams realized that the French government, in the midst of revolution, was unstable and changed frequently. Thus, he still hoped a peace could be negotiated and war avoided, realizing that if the American people, already clamoring for war, found out about the insulting French demands, the push for war would become too great to ignore. Feeding off the people's war fever, the Federalists introduced four pieces of legislation that became collectively known as the Alien and Sedition Acts to counter French espionage and pro-French sedition within America. These acts essentially made it illegal to oppose the government by allowing for fines or even imprisonment for anyone who write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writings against the federal government. Adams was reluctant to sign the acts as they placed enormous power in the hands of the executive and betrayed the spirit of 1776. Abigail favored the acts, however, and convinced her husband to sign them. Under the Alien and Sedition Acts, more than 20 Republican newspaper editors were arrested. Even congressional representatives were not immune. Representative Lyons of Vermont was arrested for a letter he had written criticizing Adams for his unbounded thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and self-avarice. Though imprisoned, the people of Vermont continued to re-elect Lyons to Congress. In 1799, Adams sent another peace commission to France. 
the press turned against the president, claiming that he was too impulsive while his more politically savvy wife was away in Massachusetts. Abigail disputed the claim, calling the delegation a masterstroke of policy. The peace delegation was eventually successful in forming a treaty with France, though not in time to rescue Adams. Jefferson and the Republicans had used every crisis they could think of to undermine the Federalists, and it paid off during the election of 1800. On November 1st, President Adams finally moved into the White House in Washington, D.C. He lost the presidential election the next Tuesday. The Alien and Sedition Acts were so authoritarian that they had backfired and increased the popular support of the Republicans. In fact, Jefferson and Aaron Burr, both Republicans, tied in the Electoral College. Thus, the matter of electing the president was sent to the House of Representatives. It is undisputed in American history that Hamilton's primary political rival was Thomas Jefferson. Therefore, it must have come as quite a surprise to Jefferson to learn that Hamilton had urged the Federalist members of the House to vote for him. That also gives us a hint as to what Hamilton thought of Aaron Burr, a man who had served with distinction alongside Hamilton in the Continental Army, achieving the rank of colonel. However, during the debates in the House of Representatives, Hamilton said that Jefferson possessed solid pretensions of character and was by far not so dangerous a man as Aaron Burr. As to Burr, there is nothing in his favor, Hamilton told the Congress. His private character is not defended by his partial friends. He is bankrupt beyond redemption, except by plunder of his country. His public principles have no other spring or aim than his own aggrandizement. If he can, he will certain disturb our institutions to secure himself permanent power and with it wealth. Then Hamilton added the final insult, the sharp slur that all in Congress would clearly understand. Burr, Hamilton told them, is truly the Catiline of America. As all educated Americans of the era well knew, Catiline was the talented but malevolent destroyer of Republican government. Catiline was a Roman senator, born approximately 100 years before Christ. In 63 BC, he devised a sinister plot known as the Second Catalinarian Conspiracy, because he had already attempted a previous conspiracy to overthrow the Republican government in Rome. The conspiracy failed, and Catiline was killed while fighting on the front lines with his army. In fact, as the story goes, Catiline's body was found far in front of those of his men as he bravely led them into battle. He thus died a glorious death. Of all the things said of Aaron Burr, Hamilton never called him a coward. Hamilton's speech against Burr must have come as quite a surprise to his fellow revolutionary officer. After all, the two men had lived quite cordial lives up until that point. Both New York attorneys, they had even partnered in some legal cases together. The duo had once won the largest judgment ever awarded by a court in America up until that time. While it was later realized that Hamilton had been bad-mouthing Burr behind his back for years, this was the first personal attack Hamilton had committed against Burr in such a public manner. Hamilton's speech against Burr was effective, and Thomas Jefferson was elected president, with Aaron Burr serving as his vice president. This was the last time the runner-up was elected vice president, as all subsequent elections would have a clearly designated president and vice president on each ticket.
Hamilton was obviously quite relieved by the outcome, but Aaron Burr did not simply go away. Hamilton did not realize it at the time, but his antagonisms of Burr would one day have deadly consequences. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. <laughs>